Welcome. This is Philippe Albuquerque, and I'm thrilled to be introducing our next in our series of Editor's Choice podcasts. Today, we are happy to have Kyle Fargen from the Neurological Surgery and Radiology at Wake Forest University discussing his recent manuscript entitled Mechanical Thrombectomy Decision-Making and Prognostication, Stroke Treatment Assessments Prior to Thrombectomy in Neurointervention Study, the SATIN Study. Prior to beginning our podcast, I'd like to read a word from our sponsors. Rapid Medical pioneers adjustable intravascular tools that offer physicians expanded capabilities without compromise between safety and efficacy. So if you're looking for devices to do a bit more for you, solutions such as the Tiger Retriever 13, the smallest thrombectomy device in use, adjust to the vessel, allowing you to relax tension of the device prior to retrieval. For more information, email info at rapid-medical.com. Kyle, welcome and thank you again for taking part in this. I know you've taken part in a couple of these podcasts. I think that's reflective of uh, the great work that that you and your group do and, and your support of the journal. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. So, Kyle, just uh, from the get-go, I wanted to understand a a little bit about your impetus for creating this uh, analysis. What what was the motivation behind it? Obviously, the assessment of patients with large vessel occlusion and how they should be treated uh, is of critical import to the neurointerventional community. So I found this manuscript fascinating. Uh, and as I mentioned, it will appear in a print issue of the JNIS coming up. So describe a little bit your, your methods and your rationale for pursuing this analysis. Well, I've always been fascinated for a long time about the process through which we make clinical decisions. There's this large trove of psychology research looking into human decision-making and the mechanisms by which we choose different actions or choices. And many of the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis are unconscious and automatic. They're made rapidly with little mental effort. But because they're shortcuts, they are greatly affected by cognitive biases, many of which we have no idea are occurring. So as doctors, we would naturally think that the majority of our clinical decisions are made with great thought, effort, and analysis. You know, we naturally assume that our decisions are are born of experience, evidence, and ethics. We know what risk factors are associated with, with better or worse outcomes. So naturally, we think we're making logical, correct decisions in most situations. But I think the reality is that uh, our clinical decisions are subject to these considerable subconscious biases that sway us in one way or another. And there's all this research looking into this, and it's quite interesting for any listeners um, that uh, want to read more about this. It's quite fascinating. Um, But medical decision-making is really important because it dictates every step of how we care for sick people. So the most gifted technician or uh, knowledgeable doctor will still be a terrible doctor if they can't appropriately choose who to operate on. And in my view, understanding these shortcomings and our biases 
when it comes to decision making, like it, it's a really important step in maturing as a surgeon. And um, mechanical thrombectomy for stroke is a really unique clinical situation, which challenges that decision making. And from a research standpoint, is a really ideal scenario to study this phenomenon. You know, these patients have a life-threatening emergent problem where we have to make a decision quite rapidly with limited or quite frankly incorrect information. Perfusion imaging that we rely on is often suspect. The consults occur in the middle of the night or while we're doing other complex procedures. Patients are frequently aphasic or their family is not reachable. Frequently, we can't even examine the patients ourselves before we make that decision. And because timing is of the utmost importance, uh, we're talking about a situation um, that's quite dire. And uh, if we choose incorrectly, we can doom a patient to death or profound disability. And, and so in my own practice, I would like to think that I'm an intelligent, competent interventionist that makes thoughtful decisions. But I was finding that many of the patients I would intervene on would do quite poorly when I assumed that they would do well. And many that I thought would do very poorly ended up doing much better than expected. And so um, my hypothesis when designing this study w- was that, you know, were we to prospectively study how we're making decisions and how accurate we are in predicting outcomes, that we would find that we were not as skilled in predicting those outcomes as we would think. And some of the factors that we would probably consider to be the most important in coming to that decision would turn out to be less important in actuality than we than we would think. And interestingly, this is what we found um, in the study. Yeah, no, I thought that was uh, uh, very interesting. And your overall conclusion was that neurointerventionalists performed poorly in prognosticating patient 90-day outcomes. And and you mentioned that this raises ethical questions regarding whether mechanical thrombectomy should be withheld in certain patients uh, with emergent large vessel occlusions thought to have poor prognosis. Can you review a few of the factors, Kyle, that you were specifically assessing that you thought were of importance in predicting outcome? Yes. So um, I think to answer that question, uh, it's probably best if I just review what we asked the uh, neurodimensionalist to do uh, before uh, they enrolled the patient. And so this was a prospective study where um, the attending neurodimensionalist had to complete a brief questionnaire prior to arterial puncture about what they thought this patient's premorbid condition was, how they thought they would do with the procedure, whether there would be a complication or not, and then whether they felt like they had all the information necessary to make a good decision, and then to identify from a list the most important factors driving that decision. So basically that list included things like occlusion site, age, um, the imaging findings, like perfusion imaging findings, time from onset, stroke scale, other things like that. And all that was required to be completed prior to the procedure. And then essentially uh, after we had enrolled roughly 300 patients, we went back and retrospectively collected the data on those cases um, blinded to the people collecting the data 
about what they had entered in the um, pre-procedure survey to basically look at what factors were most important, how well we were predicting, and whether the actual factors that mattered in determining outcomes were the ones that the operator was selecting as the important ones beforehand. Um, and so what we found is, first off, that um, people were quite poor at predicting clinical outcome. Overall, about 40% of the patients, 44% of patients, the, the physician guessed correctly. And when I say guessed, I mean uh, made an informed decision as to what they thought the outcome would be ahead of time, which is not much better than just randomly guessing. You, know, you would expect a, a one-third chance of randomly guessing. And so it was only marginally better than that. What we also found is that certain factors were very clearly found to be most important or reportedly to be most important in, in making those decisions. And those were pretty universally at the top of the list. And that was the site of occlusion, the stroke score, and the perfusion findings. And interestingly, those things probably were less important in the actual outcome than people thought. So they were overemphasizing those factors. And importantly, pre-morbid modified Rankin was the one that was underemphasized, but ended up being really, really important in actually determining outcome. Yeah, that's, I think, a critical issue. Uh, The pre-morbid neurological functioning of a patient, uh, as we all know, in performing mechanical thrombectomy is always pretty elusive thing for us to delineate. I mean, we're taking these patients emergently to the angiographic suite, often in the middle of the night or at odd hours. We don't have access to the family. We often don't have access to the patient's past medical history. How can we, given the fact that you've elucidated that this is an important factor, what, what are the steps that we can take to raise the importance of this and, and to understand it better? So that's a, a, a really good question. And I think probably the most important practical implication of the findings, you know, a lot of the decision-making things that we talk about are, are sort of philosophical. And yeah, it's nice for people to understand their biases and to have uh, a healthy respect for their shortcomings in making those decisions. I think the one sort of more practical thing we can take out of this is that pre-morbid modified Rankin or pre-morbid functional status really should be a core item that we try to retrieve as early as possible in the process of the, the you know the information gathering process for, for making good decisions. In, in this study, one of the really interesting findings was, was that we um, had the physician report what they thought the pre-morbid modifying Rankin score was for the patient based on the information that was provided to them prior to doing the procedure. And then when we went back and actually collected the more accurate data later, once we had the you know, family information, living environment, all that stuff was known, we retrospectively collected that. And when we compare those ratings, they were wrong in the majority, meaning that the physician was incorrectly predicting what they thought the modified Rankin was ahead of time. And it turns out that a modified Rankin score pre-morbid was a very important predictor of clinical outcome. And so I, I think that just goes to show you that oftentimes we, we aren't getting correct information. 
or we're not focusing on that. And that's a large gap and a potential area for uh, improvement. Most of us rely on age, last known normal, stroke scale, and imaging finding as, as the main decision drivers. And this study very clearly suggests that I think pre-morbid MRS should be one of these core items. How we go about doing this, I think, at the at the simple level of being the physician, it's it's getting your team members and the ER and the people at your facility to focus on obtaining that information right off the bat with good questions, uh, trying to delve into where these patients are living, what their quality of life was ahead of time, their ability to carry out ADLs. These should be like standard questions that we ask ahead of time. From a systematic standpoint, it's trying to to have EMS and the first providers involved really try to get this information as a core metric that we then use to to guide decision making. Absolutely, I completely concur. Though it it is a bit of a, a elusive thing to to try to gather, as I mentioned, uh, on an emergency basis. But certainly, we have to do a bit of a better job doing that. Regardless of these factors, Kyle, more than 86% of the patients in your trial, in your analysis, uh, achieved a TICI score of 2B or better, and nearly 40% of these achieved an MRS outcome of 2 or better. So, and this is a tremendously effective treatment. Uh, We're now looking in the future, actually not that far in the future, to the results of randomized trials looking at large core volumes, uh, which hopefully will be presented at the ISC meeting and we'll have access to in the next month or so. Um, But how do we deny patients this particular treatment? I mean, it, it, as we all know, is, is tremendously effective, even if we're poor at predicting it, the radiographic outcomes of 86% of patients achieving a TICI-2 score of 2B or better, those are pretty impressive. So where where do we start making that delineation of patients that we should be taking and, and those that perhaps we shouldn't? Well, I think that's, that's a great question. And uh, it drives home sort of the philosophical argument about mechanical thrombectomy. This is not a randomized trial looking at just M1 or ICA occlusions. This is all comers uh, based solely on the discretion of the treating physician uh, making that decision. And even in light of that, uh, the reperfusion scores were quite good and we were still achieving outcomes that were similar to many of these randomized trials with more standardized patient selection. And so, so I do, it's a very powerful treatment. We, we all know that. Um, and I think one of the really important ethical arguments that this study suggests is that if we are really poor at predicting who's going to do well after this treatment, it also suggests that we're probably really poor um, using those same strategies at at predicting who is going to do poorly with an intervention. And in, in this study, 10% of patients that the physician thought was going to do really poorly, we're talking about modified ranking or five or six, so profound disability or death, 10% of those patients ended up having a good clinical outcome. 
And so the question then is, well, how many patients are we turning down for thrombectomy using some relatively soft decision-making strategies that could potentially have been saved with a good quality of life had we intervened? And, uh, you know, I'm obviously not implying that we should intervene on everybody with a vessel occlusion, but there is growing data suggesting that patients with significant core infarcts, you know, the Hermes data showing aspects as low as three still have benefit to thrombectomy. Um, Premorbid modified Rankin being in the three or four range, low stroke scores, distal occlusions, sort of not standardized patients as we would, would traditionally think about them, but many of these patients, there is a benefit compared to medical management with thrombectomy, or at least we think there's a benefit. And I think, you know, we need to think about how aggressive should we be based upon our poor ability to predict how patients are going to do, Uh, especially with a study like this showing that um, we're frequently very wrong about how patients will do clinically afterwards. So if we were to philosophically just liberalize our criteria for thrombectomy to be more aggressive, such that we're intervening on most people, to ensure that we are not withholding treatment from anyone who might benefit, we're then talking about doing an enormous number of procedures. So dramatically increasing the number of procedures we're doing on a regular basis, dramatically increasing the costs associated with that, the consuming resources, uh, we have to consider not only the, the physicians and, and their schedules and their burnout, but also all of the staff that, that help us, like the technologists and all those people. Uh, and in the process of doing all that, we're going to dramatically also increase our incidence of bad procedural outcomes. And also we're gonna have more complications. However, this would be achieved, all these things would happen with potentially saving a small number of patients. So if you think about this on a spectrum, your aggressiveness to pursue thrombectomy, at some point on that spectrum, there's a threshold where being more aggressive results in an amount of harm that outweighs the good. And I don't know where that threshold is, And I'm not going to make like a philosophical (laughs) argument based solely on the data from this simple study. But but I do think it's really important that we think about this and we think about where we sit on that spectrum personally and why we sit there and the the bias is pushing us one way or another on that spectrum. And I think it would be, it would, for, for we and our patients, we'd be all the better for it if we were really more thoughtful about that dilemma. Yeah, well, uh, obviously, Kyle, you you are quite thoughtful uh, regarding patients like this. I I wonder you you talk about delineating that threshold. If you take this data that you've uh, accumulated here, and I'll and in all disclosure, I'm an author on this manuscript as well. Where do you draw the line? How how has this manuscript, these data, impacted your practice? What are the 
parameters, so to speak, that you're looking at when you enter a mechanical thrombectomy case and decide to perform mechanical thrombectomy or not? So that's a great question. And I don't have a great answer for you. <laughs> what, I, what I will tell you <laughs> oh, is- Oh, come on. Yeah, uh, we need all the answers. I, I would say that uh, <laughs> how has this changed? Well, I am much more aggressive about trying to get accurate pre-morbid functional status data ahead of time. I've always been leaning more on the aggressive end of the spectrum. And I think, I, I think this data sort of supports doing that. The data from the study supports that our ability to understand how a patient will do is quite poor. And I think we have to take that in consideration when making decisions. I try to, I try to get as many people involved in that decision as possible to reduce the bias. So we, multidisciplinary consensus with stroke neurology or, or whoever else. Uh, and family, obviously, to make decisions. But I think I try to involve as many people as possible and as much information as possible, knowing at the end of the day that in some cases, we just don't have that information and you just have to do what you think is best. And because the complication rate associated with thrombectomy is fairly low, in my view, if you don't know, it's probably best to intervene if you feel like you can do it safely and you feel like it's in the best interest of that patient. Um, and yeah. so in situations that are marginal, where in the past I might have said no, I oftentimes find myself leaning towards intervening more now because I've confirmed that my decision-making is not as good as I thought it was. Yeah, not as good as you thought it was at the outset. That makes complete sense. You, you talk and we, we throw around this term all the time, real world assessment. Uh, obviously, in this study, there are 11 experienced centers that uh, you solicited and were part of the study. Do you think this does represent a real world assessment of our ability to predict outcomes in these patients? And you know, we think about real world, uh, we're, we're blessed in the United States with tremendous resources, but the real world um, in third world countries and disadvantaged countries, that these resources aren't available. Are we getting to a point where we have to have some sort of objective criteria in the real world in order to proceed with mechanical thrombectomy? That's a big question. I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that, <laughs> but I, I think I think this study captured, and I hope it captured, a realistic view of how patients are being selected for treatment in this country. Uh, we have 11 geographically diverse, high volume centers and we included all patients, not just those with standard, you know, M1 occlusions. Uh, interestingly, we did look at that data as well. And just as an aside, if we select patients just with standard M1 occlusions, our decision-making was not any better, meaning that our ability to predict outcomes was not any better. But I, I think this is an adequate reflection, at least in the United States, of the patients we're taking care of. Um, there were some limitations in the study we tried to enroll all consecutive patients. A number of patients weren't included for various reasons. Either the physician didn't fill out the form in time or forgot to do it or, uh, or for whatever other reason. 
But I think it probably accurately shows how we're making decisions in a real world. Now, as far as elsewhere outside of the United States, I, I don't think we can comment on that. And so I, I don't think I can um, provide any useful commentary from this study alone. Sure. You conclude in your study that these findings highlight the importance of protocolized and defined decision-making aids in the selection of patients for mechanical thrombectomy. What what are those protocolized and defined decision-making aids that you think are critical uh, in assessing this patient population? Well, I think um, we've learned in many other areas of medicine that um, individual subjective decisions uh, without some sort of standardization oftentimes leads people down rabbit holes away from standard of care uh, practice, meaning that people who are making subjective decisions on the fly without some sort of guidance, evidence-based guidance, are probably more prone to those cognitive biases and, and, and potentially making the wrong decision. In stroke care right now, um, there's a number of studies that have looked at deep learning algorithms to try to help make decisions, and no, none of those are used um, in a widespread nature. But I think using large data sets, capturing important metrics that we care about, like the, the things we talked about earlier today, and actually having a mechanism through which we can calculate the likelihood of a good outcome in a sort of standardized, objective manner, I think would, would aid us significantly in, in, in making uh, better decisions. I don't necessarily have data suggesting or providing evidence that that is the case, but in most other areas of medicine, that is the case. And right now, most of us aren't using any sort of standardized or data-driven algorithm for making these decisions. And so I, 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 that comment is just driving home the point that I think that's the next step, that we have to figure out how we're making these decisions and whether adding standardized evidence-based algorithms aids us in making better decisions. Certainly. Yeah, I, I think that's tremendously important. And we certainly need to refine our decision-making process going forward in the treatment of these patients. Well, Kyle, I want to thank you again for your time today discussing your manuscript, Mechanical Thrombectomy, Decision-Making and Prognostication, Stroke Treatment Assessments Prior to Thrombectomy and Neurointervention, the SATIN study, uh, which is currently on the JNIS website and will be, as I mentioned uh, earlier, appearing in a print issue of the JNIS. Thank you, Kyle, for your um, contribution to the journal. This uh, this was a sobering manuscript, I think, really kind of reinforcing uh, in my mind that um, we're perhaps, uh, despite our training, not uh, not particularly adept 
at predicting which patients are going to do well and which are going to do poorly. So an important contribution, obviously, to our field. And, and thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. It's been great.